Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you for joining and tuning in with us. Please stay during this hour because uh, we are going to look again in the mainly in the book of Hebrew and talking about Jesus, the anchor for our soul. The panel for today, I would like to welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, Brenton. Thank you, Nick, and it's a pleasure. This is an interesting topic, and um, I'm sure we as a panel are looking forward to sharing some good news with our listeners today. Yes, and Helen, it's good to have you with us. Thank you so much, Nick. Um, you mentioned it was about the anchor of the soul. I almost felt like bursting into song. I know one of our hymns talks about, you know, we, we have, have an anchor. anchor. Praise <laughs> God for that. Thank you for having me. Len, it's good to have you with us also. Thank you, Nick, and hello, listeners. And Will, thank you for joining. Again, a privilege. Thank you, Nick. Joe, it's good to have you part of this panel. Thank you, Nick. I really enjoy being here. And Lija, thank you for uh, being here too. I feel very privileged and blessed. Thank God for that. Ken, it's good to have you with us. Thank and you, thank you. It's always a privilege to be here. Yeah, today it's a, a, a privilege to have you as our facilitator. And thank you for putting together this uh, study. I'll just uh, hand it over to you, Ken, if you'd like to take us through. Thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners, and a very warm welcome to you today as we look deeper into Jesus. Today's study is entitled, Jesus, the Anchor of Our Soul. Now, some of you know about anchors. They are a device to keep a ship stationary in the water in all conditions. Anchors are an amazing device. The now common studded marine chain anchor was invented by Thomas Burnton in England in the early 1800s. When you look at the size of an anchor compared to the size of the ship it's attached to, you can't help but wonder how something so small can possibly keep the ship in place. With many ships today measuring over 450 metres, that's 1,500 feet, and weighing around 250,000 tonnes, anchors do an amazing job. The anchor on some of these ships can weigh up to 15 tonnes, and the chain can be as long as the ship. Also, it is with Jesus, our anchor in every storm and tempest, always there to help us overcome life storms, no matter what we face. He will never let you go as long as you are attached to him. But let's start with a prayer. Helen. Yes, let's pray. Thank you. Loving Heavenly Father, what a delight it is to call you our Father. We know that you are very close to us, but yet, you are ruling all the universes in the world. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. But thank you. Thank you for being also our best friend. Thank you for Jesus being the anchor of our soul. I pray that we will hang on to that anchor and we will be sure of our, our walk with you. Lord, I pray you will bless each person listening today. I pray the Holy Spirit will open hearts and minds. I pray, Father, for the panel, that the words from our mouths, Lord, and our hearts will be wisdom from on high that we may share with others. 
Oh, Lord, may this study that we have today draw us closer to you and each other, I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Helen. As we make our way through the Bible, we see time after time God's blessing people. Also while on earth, Jesus would meet people where they were and would teach them simple but important truths, wanting them to understand the kingdom of God and their part in it. Some of these blessings are found in Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5. Will, would you tell us about these and what the blessings are? Certainly, Ken. Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5 make reference to some of the insights and gifts that are given to the Christian after conversion. Of course, there are many more benefits than those listed here in these texts, but these are certainly most welcome for our uh, development as children of God. Let me list what uh, they say, that the text says. The first gift mentioned is enlightenment. Ephesians 1 verse 18 defines it this way. Enlightenment is having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's certainly a gift that I would love to have. The second uh, gift mentioned there is those taste the heavenly gift. Literally from the Greek, it means having experienced the gift of salvation or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which uh, it imparts to the believer. It uh, mentions another blessing as them becoming partakers of the Holy Spirit. Those who have been privileged to have had the powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, having been energized to fruitful Christian living or even having been given one of the unique gifts and abilities imparted by the Holy Spirit, it's a real special gift indeed. And then our text goes on mentioning having the good word of God. You know, the distinctive privilege of having had the word of God, the Bible, and its message transform the life, making that life a power for good in the world is something to aspire to. The last one there, those that have experienced the powers of the age to come, a little more difficult to explain this one, but um, let me just say that many Christians would have experienced miraculous transformations, either by healing of mind and character, a character renewal, only possible through the almighty interventions of the, of the Lord. But this text also seems to point to a time long after Pentecost, perhaps even in our own day, when even greater works will be seen in the fellowship of God's people. I believe that with all my heart, and it's going to be a good day indeed. Thank you, Will. Were these blessings important, and if so, why? Len, what can you tell us about this? Well, of course, what Will has just read and outlined was addressed to the Hebrew believers. They were going through a bit of a tough time, as we spoke about in the first uh, program on Hebrews. There was persecution and so on. 
And here the Apostle Paul, as far as we know, it's the Apostle Paul, is trying to encourage them to maintain their faith. Now, I want to answer this question uh, personally, and I guess each member of the panel and many people could say what I'm about to say. As far as I'm concerned, being a Christian is an absolute blessing. I thought to myself sometimes, who would I be? What would I be like if I was not a Christian? If I didn't know the Lord, if I didn't know where I came from, what I'm doing here and where I'm going. If um, the future, the Bible outlines what's future, it outlines what all the trouble is in the world, where it came from. Of course, it came from uh, a rebel angel who came down to this earth and polluted our planet with sin. So I've really experienced a blessing in knowing the Lord. Well, I'll go through these again. To be enlightened by the word of God and by the revelation through the Holy Spirit. To have experienced the heavenly gift, that's Christ. To experience salvation. That the Holy Spirit is directing my life each day, or pretty much each day in our family worship. My wife and I invite the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit and direct our lives. Um, some of you know that recently I had a, a little bit of an incident called a TIA, a, a transient ischemic attack, which is a mini stroke. And many times I've said to the Lord, well, Lord, I don't know what's going to come out of this, whether I'm going to die from it or what, but your will is good enough for me. Whatever you decide, I'm happy with. If the Lord sees fit to take me, that's okay. So it's given me a peace within myself, and I expect all of you who are on the panel could agree with that. Mm, sure. And to experience the powers of the age to come. There is an age to come for any Christian who's, who's accepted the sacrifice of Christ and lives in faithful obedience. There is an age to come which is forever. And I guess as we experience the Lord in our lives, we've already begun that journey, that future journey of eternal life. It's happening already with yes. us, even though we might have to close our eyes in death. But we've experienced some of the goodness and pleasures and joy and peace and happiness that awaits those who are faithful. So though to mention these things to the Hebrew believers, and I've experienced it in my life, and I'm sure some of you panel members or all of you have experienced similar, and I hope that all of you, our listeners, will also experience these wonderful blessings that God has for you as you align your life with his. Thank you, Len. Leecha, you had something to add? Yes, I would like to mention uh, also uh, that I do understand that the powers of the coming age, it means that in the years that we age, we uh, encounter and we ac accumulate and we make experiences with God which are the powers 
to empower our faith in God. And we are becoming stronger and stronger in a way of living. Thank you, Leitje. Well, some great blessings there, along with knowledge about the present life, plus the one to come. The more you think about it, the more amazing it all is. God, the ruler of the universe, has spent considerable time trying to get mankind to see the big picture. That mankind is special, and God has a special future life planned for him, if he will only follow God. Now, we know many people get all fired up when they first hear the gospel truth, but after a short time, they give it all away. Even Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 13. Brenton, would you read and explain this one? Certainly, uh, Ken. I'll read it um, firstly. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sow went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The background came to this is, Christ was telling this parable as the people were actually looking at a sower not that far away from where they were located who was doing exactly what Christ was saying. He was sowing. Now, some of the interesting thoughts that come out of this, Ken, I find are these. Number one, sowing in those days was very different from uh, sowing now. I've been out on the tractor with my brother-in-law when he's been sowing. It's got a 40-foot comb for harvesting, and uh, it's a huge monstrosity, and you press a heap of buttons, and it'll tell you what speed to travel at and how fast the seed is going out and all these things. Um, Here, you would have a man with a basket around his neck hanging by a rope or by some form of security, and he would be throwing the seed into the various places. Now, here's an interesting point. People get themselves really wound up in this parable, but in all honesty, if you're a sower, you would not sow seed deliberately on stony ground. You would not sow seed deliberately in thorns. You sow seed where you think you're going to get a harvest. So, To me, (laughs) this parable tells me that when the gospel is presented to people, I believe uh, Christ has covered every aspect of humanity, every type of character here in this parable. And it's not the seed, it's not the purpose of the sower that is at fault. The sower wants to sow his seed so that he gets a harvest. I believe what's important here is that it's the response to the sowing of the seed that's important. And these four particular types, it mentions going on a little bit further that um, regarding the first one, the sowing on the, on the path, it says, when anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. Then it talks about the seed by the wayside, uh, how uh, people receive it with joy. 
But then Christ goes on to explain that people who receive the word of God and, and find it absolutely wonderful, they do remain for a short period of time. And often we need to remind ourselves and our listeners, we've probably all experienced situations where people have accepted the word of God. It's the most wonderful thing they've ever come across in their life. But in six months' time, they're gone. Where's so-and-so? Haven't seen them at church for a while. Uh, they've dropped out. And often it's because, as Christ said, because of persecution in relationship to the world. We have to be specific in our application here. The persecution comes because they've accepted the word of God. And then you come to the third group, the group where the seed seems to have fallen among thorns. There is actually no real suggestion here in Christ's parable as to how um, how that's received. It, it basically says that the worries of this world or the cares of this world, I think it says, and the deceitfulness of Richard, riches choke it out. In other words, the, the word of God planted in the heart doesn't have an opportunity to grow because everything else in life has taken over. Now, in 2022, we are living busier and busier lives. We may have COVID-19 and all the rest of it, but some of us seem to live such busy lives that is the word of God being choked out in our own lives and hearts? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. The fourth group seemed to be a group who are completely honest in heart. They accept the word of God. Not only did they accept it, it remains, it grows, and it produces fruit because then they tell others and still others and still others about the word of God. When we come to some of these texts further on, we'll explain a little bit more, but Basically, I believe this parable encompasses humanity and the fact that the word of God is available to everyone. That's another important point here as well. Thank you, Brent. That was a good explanation. Now, we know it can be difficult in this world to be a Christian, as we, in a sense, are swimming against the flow. Even Jesus told us we would have problems in John 16, verse 33, and in Hebrews 10, verse 32. Helen would you read these and explain? I would delight, be delighted to read those. I think John 16.33 for me is such an encouragement when I read this text. And let me read it now. John 16 verse 33 says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, when I look at this text, I think, you know, Jesus is saying, in me you may have peace. And and I just want to have a little look at John 14, if you don't mind. I'd like to flip over in John 14, 27, which links in this uh, thought of peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And and that is a peace. It's a peace with, that we don't often understand. So I wanted to start with that because I think when we get into that text, we can see that we need to have that peace that is grounded in a relationship with Jesus. It is the only way we can get through many things. And then it goes on to say, in the world you will have tribulation. Wow. How many of us like tribulation? No, tribulation, sorrow, suffering. 
um, I think a lot of us want to shy away from us from that. But Jesus gives us this warning. He doesn't think, say you might. He doesn't say, oh, you know, maybe some of you will. He actually says the words, you will have tribulation. You know, despite the suffering, Jesus encouraged us to stay peaceful, if we link it back to that one, to take heart and to know that he is over all. In fact, if you look at this, he overcame. It says, I have overcome the world. He overcame. He defeated all things. I should hear from the panel, hallelujah. Amen. You know, as Christians, we should expect continuing tension with with unbelieving world that is kind of out of sync, if I can put it that way, with Christ and his good news and his people. And at the same time, we can expect our relationship with Christ to produce peace and comfort because we are in sync with him. With these words, Christ told his disciples to take courage or be of good cheer. In spite of the inevitable struggles that they would face, they would never be alone. We are never alone. Jesus does not abandon us or our struggles. And if we remember that the ultimate victory has already been won, we can claim that peace of Christ in in the troublesome times that we come. So be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. But I want to go on to the second one that you mentioned, Ken. Hebrews 10.32, and it says there, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Again, here we have the word sufferings coming in. And again, Hebrews, or Paul, is encouraging us as believers to persevere in our Christian faith and to end contact, contact when facing persecution and pressure. I used to say many times whenever tribulation came my way, I'd say, why me, Lord? Why? And I would literally question him and scream to the heavens until I met a guy who had had an accident and he was so happy. He was in a wheelchair. I think I've mentioned that on air before. And I said to him, what, what's happened? And he taught me not to say why. He said, why not? Because God can bring good out of all things, even mm. if we can't yes. see it. At, at the time, you know, we don't usually think of suffering as good for us, but it is, it does help us to build our characters and to build ca- uh, patience as well. I'd just like to finish on, on that note by saying, even in the midst of persecution, there is joyful peace in the certainty of Christ's victory. Thank you, Helen. We see as Christians, we are not insulated from the problems this world brings forth. In fact, many times we are right in the middle of disasters and feel the same pain and sorrow as others around us. At times we may feel Jesus is not with us or does not know what we are going through. Len, can you give us some examples of God's people who may have felt this way? Yes. Well, if you go through the Bible, it seems that anybody whose name started with a J was going to have certain persecutions and troubles. In fact, there's an inordinate an inordinate number of those whose names start with a J who ended up having persecution or problems like that. There was Job, I remember. He lost his family, lost his animals, lost his servants, lost his health, but he didn't lose his faith. That was 
That was really something. There was John the Baptist. Well, he had his head cut off. Then there was Jeremiah. Jeremiah went through all sorts of things. He was beaten. He was put in stocks. Uh, They wanted to kill him. He um, sent a message to the king. The king started to read it. Then he cut it up and threw it in the fire. Jeremiah was put in a pit and he was called a liar. He's called the weeping prophet because he had a huge number of bad things happen to him. There was Jesus himself. Uh, He was crucified. He was treated with ridicule and opposition. There was John the Apostle. John, in his later life, was sentenced to death by the Romans. They thought they'd really make an example of him and try to cook him in a, a cauldron of oil. He came out totally unharmed like the three worthies in the fiery furnace. There was uh, Joseph who was imprisoned. He was sold as a slave, a whole lot of things. There was James had his uh, also was beheaded. Well, there were others, not just the J ones. There was Moses, Naomi, Stephen, Paul. Paul um, gave a bit of an expose of the things that happened to him in being a Christian. I'll read just a little bit. I don't want to take too long, but Paul, he says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. In other words, he was whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in dangers from rivers, from bandits, from fellow Jews, from Gentiles. And the list goes on. Yes, Christians don't have it all easy. But I want to say something. Why? Why does God allow these things to come along? Why aren't we just living in paradise now? Outside my front door, I've planted an avocado tree. It's got a long, thin stem. Fortunately, it's growing well. And it's attached to a stake. But it needs to get the strength in its own trunk. And soon I'll be removing that stake to give it some strength. The wind can blow it on it and push it around. But it'll get stronger as a result. And although some of these bad things that happen to Christians might not be appreciated, in the long run, if we come through, it will strengthen us as we trust in the Lord. Thank you, Len. Well, some great examples there of God's people facing hardships and death. But what about God's people who really lost it? Joe, could you give us an example here? Yes, well, as we all know, the Bible doesn't whitewash. It doesn't embellish God's servants. Uh, God's servants fall and make mistakes. And the Bible tells us like it was, like it is. And David is an example of when a good person or a follower of Christ makes some seriously poor choices and brings disappointment to God and shame to themselves. And unfortunately, it's recorded in scripture (laughs) for all to read and to learn from. I believe that the devil relishes when he can bring bring an upstanding Christian 
or a God, follower of God down like this. And um, it's almost, it brings to mind the scene in heaven where, you know, in the book of Job where Satan gloats about how the world is under his control. Now we know, all know the story of David, a man after God's own heart, it says, and the beautiful Bathsheba, you know, the lust, the coveting, the adultery, the lies, and eventually murder that's involved is written in the scripture. Second uh, Samuel chapters 11. Now, at this stage, David was spiritually adrift, if you like, and he had lost an anchor for his soul for a time. I think that this period in his life could have lasted for possibly a year, going from hints in scripture about the timings of things. In this time, he had lied, continually lied to cover his tracks. He'd lied to his courtiers, to his people, his God, and to himself. Does God leave him in this situation? No. Okay. God sends the prophet Nathan to bring him to his senses, to bring down the wall of delusion that he had surrounded himself with. And we know from Scripture that David thoroughly repents. Now, this is a story of a huge lapse in judgment and leading to a series of poor choices, perhaps one worse than the other. There is much more that can be said about this. However, one thing must be remembered, and that is God is ever waiting for the sinner, the individual, to come to their senses, to come to God. And we must remember that God will never turn away anyone who approaches him. Now, there are a couple of texts that give me courage, and it says, Jesus says, these are his words, and he says, this is from the Amplified Version, it says, all whom my Father gives when trust to me will come to me and the one who comes to me i will most certainly not cast out i will never no never reject one of them who comes to me so here we have the only thing we need to do is to come to christ as we are no matter what we have done no matter where we've been whatever situation we've found ourselves in if we come if we come to god he will not cast us out and there's another one that I find great comfort in is Isaiah 42, verse 3, where it says a bruised reed he will not break. You know, what do we do? We just cut off the bruised reed and throw it away. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. While there's just a little bit of bit of uh, smoke, a bit of smolder, God tries to, all in his power to revive. Now, we know, we know also that... Had David, I mean, we know that David thoroughly repented, but had David, I mean, David could have hardened his heart. He could have resisted the Holy Spirit, which would have led him down a very different path and a not way, not a good way to go. Very different consequences there are to persistent resistance to God's Spirit. Important thing to remember is that come to God, come to Jesus. There is nothing that will shock him. He knows what you've done. He knows where you've been. He knows what you're thinking. And he has great plans for you. So come, come to Jesus today. Those are very encouraging words. (laughs) So King David, who was an amazing character and loved by God, but he really went off the rails. But God took him back. Does that mean there is hope for us if we get things wrong at times? Helen, Can you enlighten us in this? Well, I'm going to answer that question with a big yes, yes, and yes. It -hmm. does give us hope, doesn't it? And not only David, I'm reminded of King Manasseh, the wickedest king ever. 
And when he turned to God, God forgave him. So for me, that gives me great comfort. But I'm very privileged this morning to share with you one of my very favorite texts. And it's found in 1 John 1 verse 9. And I think probably the panel already knows this one, but let me read it. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, no matter how unfaithful we may be, God is always faithful to his promise to forgive. I'd just like to take a couple of moments to break this verse down because I think it's such an important verse for us. It starts off with the word if. To me, that means it's conditional. We have a part here. If. If we what? Well, we for a start means everybody. No one excluded. Every single person ever born or is going to be born on this earth is encompassed in that word. You know, um, and then comes the word confess. It's an action word. He's asking us to do something. And again, we come, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. You know, when you think that's a present tense, he is. Not he will be, not he has been. He is. My friends, that should give us all courage. He is faithful and just. There's his actions. To do what? To forgive. Us, you, me, everyone, collectively, our sins, all of them. You know, and when we go back, what is our condition that we need to fulfill that? We need to confess. And by doing that and allowing the Holy Spirit in our life to prompt us, he will definitely forgive us. But I'd also want to say there is more. He says he will cleanse us. Wow. I do the washing and, and you know, I wash the... um the clothes or the dishes and their stains on them. It is such a delight to look at a rack full of dishes that are shining and bright or to see the clothes on the line. He's going to cleanse us, our lives. Take away those stains of sin. I don't know why we don't get so excited about this, you know. And and he says from all, from everything, unrighteousness. You know, I was looking up in um, John seven eighteen, and it says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So what's this unrighteousness we talk about? It's misdeeds, it's injustice, it's moral wrongdoing, it's unjust acts, it's iniquity. It is the opposite of truthfulness, faithfulness, and righteousness. You know, I praise God for that actual text when he says um, that he will forgive us. But there is another section here that we need to also discuss. And let me just go here and look at 1 John 2 verse 1. Very quickly it says, my little children. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? My little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but, and this is a comfort, if. There's if again, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, to people who are feeling guilty, condemned, John offers us reassurance in his word. 1 John 2 verse 1. They know, and we all know that we sin. We also know that Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10, is demanding a death penalty 
when you feel that way, I would like to encourage each listener and panel member, do not give up hope. The best defence attorney, attorney, which is our, our advocate in the universe, is pleading our cause, your cause, my cause. Jesus Christ, your advocate, your defender, if you like the judge's son, the judge, he has already suffered our penalty in our place. Praise, praise God. Hang on to those beautiful promises. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is really good news for us. But can we reach a point where we cannot reconnect again with God? Will, would you enlighten us in this? Jen, Len and I referred to the blessings listed in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. But you know, there is a part of this text which uh, is a jolt to our self-confidence. And I'd like to read this text now. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. You know, these verses deal with the uh, fate of those who fall away from God. The question at issue is the possibility of restoring such as have had a deep Christian experience but have fallen away. Can they be restored to Christian fellowship and again receive mercy? This passage has been a source of great perplexity and discouragement to many. It seems to teach that those who fall away from the faith are irrevocably lost. You know, this leads me to immediately think of what the Bible calls the unpardonable sin, of the sin against the Holy Spirit, And only those that are guilty of this cannot be renewed to repentance. It's sad, but it's true. But this sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit, manifests itself in continued resistance to the call of God and the wooing of the Spirit. It is a state where there is no more response to the voice of God. The person has no remorse, No feeling of sorrow for sin, no desire to turn from it, no conscience anymore that accuses him. If one still holds a desire to do right, he may confidently believe that there is still hope for him. You know, in the very next chapter, Hebrews 7 and verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, I know the panel will have more to say on this, but let me read you a little piece from my favorite little book, uh, Steps to Christ. The sinner may resist this love, that's God's love. He may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist He will be drawn to Jesus. A knowledge of the plan of salvation 
will lead him to the foot of the cross in repentance for his sins, which have caused the sufferings of God's dear Son. You know, panel and listener, from this I deduce that unless that soul shouts out at God saying, leave me alone, listen, I tell you, leave me alone, I don't even want to talk to you anymore. Unless he does that, he is not beyond redemption. While I say there is still a twinge of conscience for the Holy Spirit to work on, while there is even the faintest spark of hope, there is ultimate hope for the sinner. Wow. Brenton, uh, just quickly, um, Will has certainly described that very, very well. I feel that this comment, uh, crucifying Christ afresh, we know that the book of Hebrews was written primarily to Jews and probably Gentiles as well. Jews understood the crucifixion of Christ. They understood the literal crucifixion of Christ. I believe what um, Paul is saying in the book of Hebrews is this. He's saying, you know what took place physically when Christ was crucified. Since you became a Christian and you understood that it was the death of Christ on Calvary and the shedding of his blood that made your salvation secure and possible, if you reject that, there is nothing further that God can do because, in a sense, you are crucifying Christ again. You're not physically crucifying him, but you're crucifying him spiritually. I see in these verses there is hope. I agree with what Will has said. Paul talked in Galatians 2.20, and Jesus himself said in Mark 8.34, that if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. So where it, where it boils down is if you have wandered away from the Lord, as Will said, only if you choose deliberately to stay away, and an example of that is Judas, and an example of someone who was restored is Peter. Now, both of them, one denied Christ and the other betrayed him. And I believe that um, Jesus restored Peter because he knew that Peter's heart, even though he'd done the wrong thing, he was willing to turn again. He actually said to Peter, he said, when you have returned, some versions of scripture say when you have been converted. I'm not sure on that one. I'm What I am sure of is that um, he did return again. And in John 21, Christ reinstated him and said, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. I don't believe anyone is beyond the pale. They're beyond the pale when they reach the point, as Will has said, that they say to God, we don't want anything to do with you anymore. The only person who knows that is God. So therefore, we should never, and I repeat, never, as panel and as ministers of the gospel, people who are sharing the good news, we should never, ever write people off. We should always strive for them. Christ even said in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together, but you wouldn't let me. I believe if we have that spirit of compassion in our own hearts, we will strive for the salvation of others. Only God knows when it's too late. And I'm happy to leave it in his hands. He'll do what is best for, for all concerned. But again, I just want to 
elaborate a little bit more, Ron. How is it possible to crucify Jesus again and put him to shame? And how does it affect our lives and hope of heaven? Nick, would you like to answer this one? Sure, Ken. And uh, yeah, Will, if you thought that uh, the passage from um, chapter 6 and uh, verses 4 to 6 were difficult, I would like to draw your attention to chapter 10 and uh, verses 26, and maybe we can go to 29, because this is very interesting passage here. It says, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remain a sacrifice for sin. I think this is a very, very clear, very strong passage here, but we have to understand it in the context. We alluded, because I cannot say that we did justice to the understanding of the sin against the Holy Spirit. We need the whole whole program just on that one to be able to deal with and, and give give a bit of, uh, yeah, draw a bit of light from there. But because we mentioned the sin against the Holy Spirit, I think this is very important because here it says that whosoever willfully, you know, there is no sacrifice for that person. What that means, you know, in John 3.16, when God says that, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only son. And it's interesting that for whosoever, whosoever believe in him, you know, we can draw the conclusion that uh, even though we say, oh, the, the sacrifice is, you know, for everyone, what benefit has the sacrifice for that person who doesn't believe? Zero. And that's why I would like to just add a little bit extra before I'm going to the next uh, verse here, that how I understand the sin against the Holy Spirit, where is no anymore uh, hope for those people, is for those people who understood the gospel, the word of God, and they start to justify with the Bible, with the word of God, their love for sin. And I came across so many people who start to justify with the Bible something uh, about which they like. You know what I mean? And that's probably where the the sin against the Holy Spirit is uh, triggered. Not, Not when we don't understand. Because that's a different story. When we start to justify our position, even using the word of God. And we have in the next uh, verse here, in verse 27 says, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fear of indignation, which will devour the adversary. That's continue kind of from 26. But in verse 28, it says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three people. You see, this is very clear. And uh, and we should, we, sometimes we say that judge was unfair in those days when people were put to death on the account of two or three uh, people for their sin. And unfortunately, so many times it was with two or three false witnesses, you know, that's a different story. But why it's important to understand there is a limit 
and sin is very dangerous and sin is very um, serious because we got used to live in a world where we take it very easy. And you may heard about the phrase like cheap grace. I mean, grace is an amazing thing from God. But if we take it very loosely, that may not uh, uh, do the work for us. And Helen mentioned a bit earlier that we have a, a role to play. And the word if in this case is, says willingly. Uh, if we do things willingly, and Judah knew, Brenton, you, you brought up that thing. He knew that that's not okay to betray his master, his, his savior, you know. He knew that. But he went against that and trying to justify the, his position, thinking, but you know what? He can do miracles. He can escape. He can use all sorts of things. And because of that, you see, he was starting to justify his position. Yes. And I believe this is the, the very, uh, very serious thing. And I hope that we'll deal with this at, at some stage with the sin against the, the Holy Spirit. And just uh, closing with the, you know, in verse 29, it says, of how much worse punishment do we suppose will he be the worthy who has trampled the son of God under the foot? I think, you know, see, if in the olden days, in the Moses time, people were punished for their sins, can we learn something from, from, from the old that we are dealing now with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ with his blood, not with the blood of the animals and so on and so forth? I agree 100% with what we shared so far that we should not be preaching a gospel of fear or a gospel of, uh, you know, scare. But we need to be realistic and to give ourselves, to put ourselves in that position, not to play with fire. Ellen. I know that our time is short, but I just want to mention one thing that hit me when Nick was, and Nicky covered that well, but when you mentioned the first part of that, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice. That can be very discouraging, just reading that on its own, and that's why we must not just sort of, you know, it has to be the whole picture as which you've done. But, you know, if it wasn't for the fact of God's grace, I sinned willfully after I came into the knowledge of God, but he forgave me because at that time I was still responsive to the Holy Spirit. Even though I wasn't aware of it, I was in in the pits of despair because I deliberately did something that I shouldn't have. And I praise God that he still took me back. And I love the part at the end. It says, wherefore he will sanctify an unholy thing and have done despite unto the spirit of grace. That's where we come back again to the fact that the spirit of grace is another name for the Holy Spirit. Yes. And that's when we bring in again that unpardonable sin where we no longer want to hear from him. We don't listen to him and we keep going down. I agree with you, Nick, that we need to have a good session on this unpardonable sin. But I just want the listener to be encouraged that, yes, they are the words, and sin is abhorrent to God. We must recognize that. 
But let's remember that even if you have gone from God and you've willfully done something and you feel the urge to come back, please come back because he said he will forgive. And Helen, I just want to answer to you, and I know some other people want to comment on that. Uh, That's exactly right. And willfully, when I express that thing, that when you intentionally, you, uh, you use the Bible to... Justify. To justify. That's what, that's, that's the problem. Because, you know, the role of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of sin and to draw us to repentance. Any single time when we are drawn to repentance, we are on the right track. But when we are not, when we justify ourselves, that's the problem. When you willfully sin and you justify that that sin is okay. Uh, Joe, you wanted a word? And then Leecher? Just very briefly, what part of what David did did he think was right? You know, (laughs) I'm sure that he knew exactly what he was doing and that it wasn't the right thing and he was doing it willfully. I think just another perspective on this, um, it is a difficult passage and I'm not undermining anything that anyone said. However, we have to keep in mind that this was written for um, Jewish Christians who were severely tempted to retreat back to Judaism. Yes. And so all the religious repentance in the world outside of Christ will do them no good because in that they are are trotting and trampling Jesus underfoot. And, um, you know, retreating from their distinctive Christianity into a safe, safe sort of, they think they're safe in their ideas and customs of their former Judaistic uh, religion you know, and, and as a result, they forsake Jesus and essentially are crucifying him again. And um, I think this is something, there's no amount of animals that could be sacrificed that could actually match anything that Jesus did. And so I think it's referring also to that. Don't think by turning your back on Jesus that there are any, there is any sacrifice for you left. Nothing. I agree with Helen. I, I make mistakes and they're unintentional, but there are many times when I actually choose to do the wrong thing, unfortunately. And so it's good to know that um, there is, you know, this is not the unforgivable sin. And so I just thought I'd throw that, just put it into perspective of who it was written to and what would it have meant in their ears. Peter, you had a comment? Willfully uh, keep on sinning, it means that, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and brings light in regard to a sin, but you keep repeating that sin. So you know that that act is a sin, but you deliberately keep on sinning, keep on sinning, keep on sinning. So this uh, sin cannot be forgiven by the Lord because in your entire life of living with God, you keep doing that sin. So the question is, when does the Lord say, yeah, you're finished, I'm, I'm had it with you? Well, I'd like to say that the Lord is very patient. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, I'm the Lord, I do not change. God's business is to save sinners. Jesus came and said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. It's only when a person absolutely totally refuses to uh, return to the Lord and to accept his grace that God can't do any more with them 
and then that person has um, condemned themselves. But from my part, I have to come to the Lord and uh, ask for forgiveness of my sin and through the power of Jesus to ask for the power of Jesus to give me strength not to repeat that sin. So I ask for forgiveness, but I always keep uh, not repeating that sin. So I, I'm, I'm from my part. I work hard not to repeat that sin. It means that God, Jesus receives me. Yeah. Brenton, you had a word? Very, very quickly, uh, Ken. If you are worried about having committed the unpardonable sin, rest assured you haven't committed it. Secondarily, the unpardonable sin is committed when you no longer feel the movings of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I believe there is another evidence for having committed the unpardonable sin, which would be imperceptible to those who have done it. Use the example of the priests and rulers. When truth is presented, and eventually because of your constant resistance, you see it as error, when truth becomes error and error becomes truth, you've committed the unpardonable sin. The problem is that by then, your spiritual perceptions are so benumbed that you don't recognise it. Thank you, Brenton. That's such an important point. Well, listeners, time has got away from us again. I hope you can see the amazing person we have on our side in the presence of Jesus, who watches over us day and night, intercedes to the Father on our behalf, and is doing everything he can to keep us in God's hands in spite of ourselves, because he is the anchor of our souls. I want to leave you with this verse today. It's in Romans 8. Verse 38 to 39, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Leecha, would you like to finish in prayer for us? Yes, thank you. Glorious Father in heaven. We coming before you to thank you so much that you can be the anchor of our soul. Please, Father, send your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds to sensitize our spirit and to be prompted and to accept the promptness of the Holy Spirit and to accept you and to anchor ourselves to you, Father, because you are the anchor of our souls and you promised that. Help us, Father, to trust in you. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for uh, your participation today. I will really encourage you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his uh, sacrifice because uh, that's the ultimate goal of us all as Christians and those people who want to have a experience with God and eternal life. May God richly bless you and help you to continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus.